Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, I know really all anyone's really thinking about over the next couple of days is the football. If you want the football, I'm afraid you're going to have to hop over to the Times' uh, other podcast, The Game. Uh, that will bring you everything you need to know about what's happening in the Euros. We may well touch on football a little bit in the episode today. The big thing coming up today is students being ripped off. Uh, if you signed up for £9,000 degree course to involve going to the lovely, shiny lecture theatres at your university of choice, and now you're told it's all going to be online, what can you do about it? We'll uh, speak to the Office of Students about how you might be able to try and get your money back. We'll also hear from students uh, themselves about the raw deal that they're facing. That's our big thing, which is coming up. But first, it's our columnist panel. Today, it's Times columnist Melanie Reid, and from the Daily Mail, John Stevens. Now, we'll talk a little bit about football in a moment, and specifically, should we have a bank holiday? Because the nation seems to be divided on that. Uh, but uh, there was some really interesting, really interesting piece, I think it's in The Economist today, based on some polling about, on the one hand, we get the impression that everyone is ready to throw off their shackles of uh, COVID restrictions. But this uh, Ipsos Mori survey for The Economist shows that support for extending certain restrictions uh, is still uh, proving quite popular, including... Um, the, even the idea of a of a curfew after t- was it two out of ten people uh, prefer, uh, like the idea of a curfew after ten o'clock. Four in ten think West face masks in shops and public transport should become permanent. Um, but let's start with you first of all, Melanie. Where do you stand on this? Are you looking forward to throwing off the shackles, or, or are you are you with these people who quite like the idea of being permanently restricted? <laughs> no, I'm. I mean, I I'm, I I just think I just love the sensible British middle middle ground that sort of cautious wise the ones who you never really pin down except when it comes to something like this and surveys the ones who aren't on twitter the sort of the kind of the middle ground that actually know what real life's like and i'm with them and i think um you know it, it's very sensible to keep going for a little bit longer um but the thought of wearing them permanently is is if we don't have to is isn't really isn't really on but um, no, I, I'm 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 with the middle ground on this one. I think uh, I love I love I love the sort of middle. I'm not going to say Middle England because I'm talking from Scotland. But you know, um, the the people who we we always tend to ignore. Yeah, the quiet, the quiet, silent majority uh, yeah. who just yeah who aren't raging on Twitter. So you're in the so on the question of masks, uh, having to wear masks in shops and on public transport. Seventy percent say for another month after July the nineteenth. Sixty four percent say until COVID is under control worldwide, and forty percent say permanently, regardless of the risk from COVID nineteen. Where, where do you stand on this, John? Well, I never really minded wearing a mask. I always thought I was completely fine with it. It didn't really seem like a massive hassle. But then I went to, I was lucky enough to go to Wimbledon last week, where everyone was either jabbed or had been tested negative. And there, once you were in, you didn't have to wear a mask. And the novelty of not having to wear a mask, I suddenly (laughs) thought, this is just amazing. Like this, I can't wait for it to be you know, all the time. So now I'm kind of can't wait for a mask to go although I probably will still wear one on the tube, uh, especially when it's busy. You know, it's starting to get busier on the tube. It's a bit hot and sticky. And I think wearing a mask on the tube is probably still sensible, especially when people are crammed in. But some of these polling figures, I just think are insane. This idea that (laughs) 19% of people want there to permanently be a curfew against leaving your home after 10pm 
I know that nutters always say they don't believe the polls, but I just don't believe there's 19% of the country <laughs> really want a curfew, which means you can't go outside after 10 o'clock. That was the thing that, that was the one that really stood out to me because the others are essentially existing coronavirus things. So it's like wearing a mask, uh, quarantine when you come back from foreign countries, social distancing theatres. And you can have a view of, well, you know, I uh, think it should be extended a bit more. I'm a bit worried about we're going a bit, uh, you know, lifting things a bit early. Um, but yeah, the, the, the 29%, 29% of people want this introduced for a month after July the 19th. And tw- 19% wants it done forever. The one that really made me laugh was that 25% of people want nightclubs closed permanently. I mean, that made me honk with laughter. Because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that just shows you how many sort of old old rotters and, and uh, 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 killjoys there are out there. You know, it's, <laughs> it's no, poor young people. Poor young yeah. people. Just shut nightclubs and casinos forever. <laughs> I don't go there. I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, just Just shut it all down. Um, maybe, maybe we could have a we we bring in the curfew uh, on Sunday. <laughs> yes, and yes. Stop these stop these disgraceful scenes that we're in London. Uh, after yeah, well the uh, key thing the is the, the question said having a curfew against leaving home after ten o'clock without a good reason. I think us winning the Euros <laughs> will probably surely we can get that written into law that that's a good enough reason. Uh, do you think? Um, do, do you think that uh, the Melanie have we all sort of started having this sort of internal sort of ethical conversation with ourselves about where we stand on personal liberty versus you know um social responsibility in a way that maybe we, we haven't really thought about that before i do know i think we're all quite settled in ourselves i i think again it comes back to that sort of that 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 weight of balance of, the, of, of being sensible um I mean, I've always believed that we need extremists. We need people who are on the extremes to make us appreciate, um, uh, you know, the, the middle ground. Um, I, I, I think I could do without anti-vaxxers and anti-science people on that regard. But I think we're all, we're all, pretty, we're all pretty sensible. We know masks are useful. And uh, as John says, on, on, on public transport, I wouldn't go on without one. So, no, I don't think there's much internal debate going on here. I think we're... We all know what we want inside, and that's just to stay pretty canny, pretty cautious. I think when once masks become man, not mandatory, they become voluntary after July the nineteenth. I think that's when you might get quite a few people scowling at people choosing not to wear a mask or maybe rouse on public transport, because I think that is going to be quite divisive. This week, I tweeted about how the Sainsbury's boss had said he didn't think people would have to wear masks in store after July the 19th and had hundreds of people tweeting me saying, this is disgusting. I won't be shopping at Sainsbury's anymore. I had hundreds of other people tweeting saying, good for Sainsbury's, I'll definitely be shopping at Sainsbury's. So I think the mask issue is where we are quite divided as a country. And I think a few people have quite strong opinions. Um, just finally then, because um, we were talking about what, what happens on Sunday night after 10 o'clock or otherwise. Uh, should we have a bank holiday if England win the Euros, Melanie? Uh, well, uh, I noticed that Scotland is excluded from this. That Scott, if there is, if, if, if they are going to have a bank holiday, it would be in Wales and Northern Ireland, but not in Scotland. Um, so, do you know? I think it's rampant populism. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, you you two guys may well be sitting there wearing your England shirts, <laughs> but I I think it's rampant populism, and um, we really don't need another bank holiday, do we? 
I couldn't think of anyone less likely to be sitting at home wearing their England shirt. But anyway, John, uh, what do you think? Are you? Uh, I mean, part of me thinks we've all had so many days stuck at home while everything's shut. Is the way to reward the nation another day being stuck at home with everything shut? Well, it would be, almost be a novelty to have a day where children go to school and everyone goes to the office. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to celebrate um, England winning. Um, I think we are slightly getting a bit ahead of ourselves that we might be slightly disappointed come Sunday night if we've prepared all these plans for bank holidays and then it doesn't happen. Um, But I think politicians are just desperate to kind of squeeze everything they can out of this. I'm not convinced that any of the current members of the cabinet are really genuine football fans. But are yeah. just to... Is that the way they keep their price tags on their shirts? Well, when well exactly. When Rishi Sunak had the price tags in on the shirt as he put it on and then when he was on the radio yesterday, he was talking about how much joy there was, but it just sounded like he was reading it off a yeah. bit of paper. <laughs> so, you know, I think politicians do anything they can to get themselves involved in this, whether that's involved, um, offering bank holidays, giving people knighthoods. I think Boris Johnson will just go absolutely <laughs> berserk if we win. So I think it will be, maybe we even get a week off rather than just a day. John Stevens and Melanie Reid there. And of course, you can read Melanie in The Times. So every week, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we challenge the universities to explain why they're not ripping off students. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's turn our attention to universities. This week, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary for England, announced some good news for students. I'm also pleased to be able to say there will be no restrictions on in-person teaching and learning in universities unless students are advised to isolate or impacted by local outbreaks. In terms of universities, we, of course, are always supporting universities in terms of international students, uh, but also supporting them to get back to -to face-to-face teaching, welcoming uh, youngsters back into the lecture theatre, which is, I know, something and part of the university experience that so many students have uh, dearly, dearly missed. However, a Times survey this week found that lectures will be online at most selective universities next year, despite what Gavin Williamson said. Uh, thousands of students at the University of Manchester in particular protesting against the idea of what they're calling blended teaching. 
But the Associate Vice President, Professor Danielle George, told John Pino there's a widespread misconception about the balance of online versus in-person teaching. Unfortunately, these protests were about something that we haven't said and we aren't planning to do. You know, students were, were given this impression from the articles that were written that we're moving teaching permanently online. So I understand their, their unrest about it, but it's simply not the case. The online teaching, what it's supposed to do is just sort of augment all, the, all that stuff that we do on campus. So all of the interactive stuff that we want to do will all be face to face on campus. The digital side of stuff is really just sort of like you might, you know, you and I might have read a book, but actually watching some videos or reading an ebook these days is also a good thing. So that's what the digital content's about. Although there are lots of people have been told that lectures will continue to be uh, online. Even the prospect of blended teaching and no reduction of tuition fees. Uh, well, in a moment, in fact, we'll speak to the Office for uh, Students. Um, we'll hear from them as to what people can do about maybe try to get some uh, money back. Let's say what Now, let's hear from uh, some... We asked you earlier in the week for students to get in touch. Let us know your uh, view. Uh, this is what some of the students who got in touch had to say. personally think that it's absolutely disgusting that some universities are still planning to stick to online learning for next year. I'm a student from Manchester. Uh, In-person learning carried on for two weeks and then it stopped. I think the decision to move lectures online is a real kick in the teeth to students who have spent you know the past year or two years of online teaching to move lectures complete online permanently for essentially cost-cutting reasons is, is disgraceful. On my course, it's been mainly through YouTube videos and um, Zoom meetings. Have we not realised the damage that the past year and a half has done to students' mental health enough? I don't think students could take another year of online learning. It is absolutely so disheartening and unmotivating spending every single day on Zoom. We asked for lower tuition fees, we asked for more money as maintenance loan, and there was literally nothing. And now we're expected to go again to university, and we will go, but I expect massive reforms, massive reparations, that we can't afford to miss another year. We now know uni has been developing completely online courses, and I think their longer-term plan is probably to move as much away from in-person as possible because they're profit-driven at the end of the day. And if they can find a model which saves them money while still being able to charge full tuition, they'll be more than happy to take it up. I mean, if we were to return to um, in-person teaching, then obviously that's brilliant. And an awful lot of people do say that they prefer in-person teaching. Online learning just isn't adequate for students anymore, especially when we're paying ridiculous fees of over nine grand. That's what students had to say to us uh, this week. Well, what can you do if you're unhappy about your learning going online? The Higher Education Regulator, the Office for Students, says it's monitoring the quality of teaching at universities amid record levels of student dissatisfaction. Well, Nicola Dandridge is the Chief Executive of the Office for Students and she explained to me what blended learning really means. I think the first thing to note in all of this is that the vast majority of universities are planning to continue with face-to-face teaching at seminars and with lab work and things like that. What we're talking about here is the lectures and the extent to which lectures are going to be delivered online. And I think there are two things going on here. Firstly is responses to the pandemic, coronavirus responses. And then the second is longer term considerations about the balance between face-to-face and digital teaching. So if it's a coronavirus related response, what we at the Office for Students are saying is that there is no reason why universities can't tell students that they're aiming to continue with face-to-face teaching and lectures 
while being clear that if health restrictions mean that that's not possible, then they're going to be contingency plans. So what we're saying there is that if the pandemic requires that the be um, that face face teaching stops, then that's one thing. And our concern will then be the quality of the provision, whether it's digital or face to face. That's quite separate to longer term plans to move towards a more um, blended model that's got nothing to do with the pandemic. And I think our concern is these two are getting mixed up. And I think we need to separate them out because different considerations will apply in different circumstances. I, I suppose the question is, you know, particularly for students who are already at university, they signed up a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. They're paying more than £9,000 a year. And particularly if you're not doing one of those very hands-on practical you know, particularly science or medicine and that sort of thing, where you are in a lab and you are probably quite getting quite intense uh, uh, face-to-face uh, tuition. If you're doing an arts degree, which is mainly, you know, lecture-based, you're suddenly paying 9000 And we've had people messaging in saying, you know, you know, if I wanted to do just watch some videos online, I could have signed up to an open university course. This isn't part of the thing. And actually, being able to grab the lecturer afterwards, chat to students going in and out of the lecture, that's all part of the, of the learning experience. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the thing is whether or not it's to do with health-related concerns, because if, if the university is being required to deliver... Uh, online only because they can't do face to face then what our concern would be is the quality of of the um, uh, online provision and the online lectures but if if it's nothing to do with uh, pandemic restrictions then I I totally agree there's real value in those uh, face-to-face interactions and there I think what I say to the students is it's really important they find out exactly what's being offered and they should get in touch with the university. So, for example, if their understanding is that lectures are going to be uh, delivered in in a lecture hall, um, and then they need to find out whether that's going to be the case or not. I think it's worth noting in all of this that moving to more digital lectures is not necessarily a bad thing, providing it's done in the right way, providing it's backed up with extensive face-to-face teaching in seminars and groups. So what you've got is a shift away from large lectures and a focus on small face-to-face teaching groups. I mean, that is a good thing. Um, so I think it's not that face-to-face lectures in themselves necess- necessarily essential, because they can be good, they can be bad. What matters here, I think, is students are clear about what's being offered. And if it is a blended offer, so-called, where it's a mixture of face-to-face and digital teaching, then the students should know what's being offered. And they certainly should be consulted on any changes if that's what universities are proposing. And from the Office for Students' point of view, should there be any allowance taken into account then with the fees that are being charged? Because if, particularly if you were a student who you're already at university right now, literally what you're being offered, you know, if you went on the open day and they showed you the lovely lecture theatres and this is all going to be part of the experience, you sign up on that basis. You know, essentially the contract that you made with that university has changed. Is there any uh, possibility, do you think, of refunds, renegotiations of what what students are paying, because they're literally not getting what they signed up for. If students are not getting what they're promised, that's a a real concern. We ourselves um, don't uh, have the power to order refunds. But whether or not students uh, are entitled to refunds, that's going to depend so much on the circumstances of the course and what they were 
promised and what they should do is get in touch with the university if they if they think they're not it, it, what's being delivered is not what was promised uh, our, what we're saying is that universities should consider every um request for a, for a, for a refund and they shouldn't have blanket policies to refuse refunds so i think it's going to depend very much on a case case by case basis what what the what students rights are but they should certainly get in touch with the university even though we can't um order um refunds we have no powers there um we're going to be extremely concerned about the quality of what's being delivered so that's our particular focus from the perspective of the individual student um if they think they are entitled to a refund then as i say they should contact the university first of all um failing which there is a um, the office the independent adjudicator which has the powers to um, uh, make recommendations for, for, for refunds. So uh, a student who is concerned about what's being offered should contact them. Uh, just finally, I wondered, does accommodation come under your remit as well? Because we've had lots of stories of students who are being charged more for, by universities because they can't move out because they're self-isolating, they can't move into new accommodation because people in the new accommodation are self-isolating, people being charged 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 pounds a day just to leave stuff in halls that they can't get into because of uh, coronavirus rules. Is that something that comes under your remit? Are you, are you happy that universities are, are treating student fairly, students fairly on the, what they're charging for accommodation? Yes, there's a real mixed picture going on with accommodation and, and clearly some students having a, a really tough time on this. It is outside our remit. Our concern is the, the quality of the academic provision. What we've uh, told universities is that we expect them to be looking very closely at arrangements for accommodation. A lot of the worst stories actually relate to private accommodation outside the university's uh, responsibility. But even there, we're saying that the university should see what they can do to provide some degree of support or advice to students who are having such a difficult time at the moment. That was Nicola Dandridge there, the head of the Office for Students. Uh, some of you are already uh, messaging in on this. Uh, Max says, if you study full-time with the Open University, you pay £6,500 a year, you get far, far less interactive online tuition than students at traditional universities are being offered, and virtually no campus facilities. £9,200 isn't a bad deal. Uh, that says Max. Uh, Historian Ben says the most striking finding of COVID student service is they want recorded lectures to be retained. These might be delivered online or delivered in person and recorded, uh, but they're more divided on that. Um, and someone else says on the text, no research yet on the difference on attention span and effective learning on delivering digitally. So going for digitally, as universities seem to be doing, is not evidence-based. And as Matt said, I'm missing social interaction with fellow students and teachers. Let us know what you think. Keep your thoughts coming in. Interestingly, despite all the concerns about this, uh, the prospect of blended teaching, socialise, you know, uh, having to self-isolate and all of that, figures suggest a record number of students are still trying to go to university and start this autumn. I spoke to Aaron Powell, uh, Chief Digital and Data Officer at UCAS, who told me why. So we've seen uh, an increase again this year in the number of applicants to uh, to university to uh, uh, to embark on an undergraduate degree. Um, Six hundred eighty-two thousand applications this year. Uh, so applicants, that is, that's a four percent increase uh, over uh, last year. Three hundred eleven thousand of those are eighteen-year-olds. So uh, a ten percent increase in the number of eighteen-year-olds applying to go to university this year. So. Uh, you know, a very substantial increase, which which indicates that actually there is still uh, you know, a significant demand for university places. There is a sense that uh, university is still seen as uh, a destination for a number of 18 year olds. Uh, universities have made nearly three million offers this year. Of course, we'll find out how that plays out uh, in terms of who gets placed where on the, uh, the 10th of August, which is 
for the first time uh, a, a sort of single UK-wide uh, results day. Uh, so we'll see how those, 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 those placements get made. But very substantial demand uh, and universities are responding in kind. And how does that, it's up 10% on last year. Was last year another record or was there a dip because of the pandemic? What's, how does it sort of compare to, I don't know, a couple of years, back in the normal times, uh, pre-COVID? Uh, is it still just growing and growing all the time? It, it is still growing. Last year was an increase on the previous year uh, and uh, it is growing. This year, uh, there is a benefit in the sense that uh, demographically, uh, there are more 18-year-olds this year than there have been in, in previous years. And we've sort of seen a dip over sort of the last five or six years in the number of 18-year-olds. That, that's, that's now sort of uh, turned a corner, I suppose. And, and we expect the number of 18-year-olds to, to grow over uh, the coming years. But the, 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 the percentage of applications to university is greater than the increase in the number of 18-year-olds, which suggests that actually many 18-year-olds are seeing university as, as the next step, the next choice for them. And what are students looking for when they're going through the application process? They're obviously, you know, part of this, they may have job uh, ideas in mind, so that might be informing some of the courses they do. But when they're sort of shopping around between universities, what are they are you able to tell what they are looking for and does it make any difference at this stage whether or not universities are saying it's going to be all virtual lectures or it's going to be all in person is that part of now of the consideration that students are making there's a number of things that i think students take into account when they're looking at uh, at a university certainly future career prospects uh, are, are one of those it's it's certainly a factor that many 18 year olds tell us they they think about there's a substantial influence uh, of uh, parents and teachers in the conversation about where they should go what they should study what they what they they, they want to uh, they want to achieve we haven't particularly picked up uh, a, a sort of a, a question about the, the nature of study, other than I think students are looking for clarity. They just want to understand what what uh, what the situation is going to be next year. Uh, how are they going to uh, be welcomed at university, uh, and how will they study over the course of the next three years? Because it's important to remember that university isn't a one year experience; it's not a one term experience. It is a three or four year experience. And in terms of the the, the types of uh, courses, there's been concern in the past about sort of lack of funding for arts degrees and whether some people might be put off applying for those. Uh, are we seeing different types of courses doing more, uh, proving to be more popular than others? Uh, this year, uh, there is a significant increase in applications for nursing courses. So a 20% increase in applications for wow. nursing. Um, an 11% increase in applications for, for teaching. So, so nursing and teaching seem to be doing particularly well this year. Overall, I, I think there's a, an, uplift, an uplift in, in many courses. The one area that we've uh, seen a, a drop and uh, a sort of a continuing drop, I suppose, is the trend is around language, which is so, so uh, modern languages, which is uh, disappointing. Uh, but but as, as I said, a very substantial increase in, in nursing applications, which I think kind of reflects the, uh, you know, you, the, the pandemic and people coming out of the pandemic and just that sense of wanting to, to make a contribution to, to sort of wider society. Um, I think it's really encouraging that 18-year-olds are, are sort of looking at nursing as an opportunity to, uh, you know, an opportunity for them in terms of their careers, but also an opportunity to to make a difference to, to the UK. And finally, Aaron, people going through the process of uh, applying and maybe getting the grades that they want or, or, or not, where can they go and find out more of that information? I think the one thing we'd flag is, um, uh, you know, there's lots of information on UCAS.com. So if applicants want to uh, find out about what their options are, UCAS.com is the place to go to. Um, 
as we go into clearing, clearing is now open. That, that's the sort of the, the phase for those who perhaps haven't got their first choice or indeed have done better than they thought they might do. Uh, and therefore uh, they want to look at alternative options. There are over 30,000 clearing choices available. So there's plenty of, uh, of choices for applicants to make. Um, and I think lastly, I would, I would emphasize that uh, there, are some, uh, there are some for whom university is not the right choice uh, and increasingly uh, we are seeing uh, a number of applicants come to UCAS to find alternative choices. Last year, we've supported over uh, 225,000 job applications through our apprenticeship options on our website. Uh, so there are a range of choices available, and I really would encourage uh, applicants to think, to think about their choices, think about their options, uh, and we're there to support applicants, whatever choice they want to make. Alan Powell there from UCAS about record numbers of students still uh, planning to go to university this autumn, despite concerns over what they might find when they get there. Now, we're talking universities and concern from lots of students about the prospect of online or blended learning, as universities are calling it, with uh, many lectures uh, remaining online, even once all restrictions have been lifted uh, from uh, September. Let's speak now to Nick Hillman, Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. Hi, Nick. Hi. Hi. Uh, Also on the line, uh, Joe Johnson, former universities uh, minister, of course. Morning, Joe. Morning. Hi, Matt. Uh, Nick, what do you make of the way that university courses seem to be changed? I mean, it seems to vary quite a lot between universities, and I wonder whether some universities are already slightly rowing back on this. It, it, uh, I mean, not every, you know, th- th- some people have already been in touch saying, actually, there's no bad thing. Having a lecture recorded is quite handy. You can go back to it and listen to it at your own pace. You can maybe listen to it not uh, first thing in the morning. Uh, but what do you make of the changing uh, shape of, of university courses? Well, there's two and a half million students in the country and they don't all want the same thing. You know, some of them have found the ed tech that's been rolled out in the crisis really positive, particularly actually disabled students. Um, And the reason this sort of row is happening at the moment is universities aren't absolutely certain what will be allowed in September. We know what the government wants to allow in September, but this time last year, they were told life would be back to normal for September 2020, and it wasn't. And therefore, they overpromised and underdelivered to their students. And they're very keen they don't do that again in the coming academic year. Uh, and Joe, um, Joe Johnson, I suppose uh, as a result of that overpromising and underdelivering, lots of students think that they've been ripped off. What have they got for their their nine thousand pounds or more? Is there a case? Do you think for some sort of refund, reimbursement for students literally not getting what they were promised from universities for for entirely understandable reasons? Well, I think the incredible demand for university places suggests actually that by and large students still see this as a pretty good proposition. Um, you know, it's, it's something of an irony that, a, that a, against a policy backdrop in which the government is trying to discourage uh, many young people from going to university, applications are at absolutely record-breaking levels. And I think, you know, this reflects the fact that the sector has, has made an incredible effort under, un, under unbelievably difficult circumstances to put in place, you know, a, 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 as good a provision as they possibly could. And I think students, by and large, recognise that. Yeah, of course, there are going to be demands around the edges for reimbursements where universities have not delivered close to what they were promising. But I think most people are being reasonable and recognise that there is a real benefit from having some blended provision going forward. You know, as you said in your in your intro, being able to watch lectures in your own time, to be able to catch up and go through them slowly. And lectures are just a small part of the overall way in which teaching and learning takes place anyway. 
but if you know, if, so if putting on much much more you know much much more individual support as well and, and their increase in contact time through increased numbers of smaller seminars tutorials practical sessions and so on the lectures are just a small part of the university experience but i suppose you the experience I mean, this time last year students preparing to go into university were you know sent the glossy brochures they were um you know shown all it wasn't just the lecture halls it was all the clubs and everything else as well it was all part of the university experience they were signing up for and instead of spent 12 months sitting in at best halls if uh, worst sitting at home with their parents watching things online that's just not the experience that they were were promised though was it do you think there is any grounds for uh asking you know holiday firms have refunded where people haven't had the holiday that they were they were promised is there grounds for universities rethinking the charges for this year Look, I mean, I think universities have had to absorb massive increase in costs themselves in putting on putting in place these sort of dual systems or blended systems for teaching as, you know, big investment in better digital learning platforms, as well as, you know, very expensive COVID safety precautions. So it would be wrong to think that universities are somehow gouging students during this whole experience. Far from it. Universities have suffered big increase in costs, plus big loss of income from events, conferences, catering, and so on. So, so the idea that a, that a sort of a sudden uh, fee reduction is going to, is going to solve anything is, is really quite wide of the mark. Interesting, uh, just finding uh, Nick Hillman. Uh, John's emailed in, says, as a lecturer at a top UK university, I can say I loathe the blended learning approach. A return to traditional face-to-face teaching would be most welcome. So it's not just students, it's, uh, it's lecturers too. No, that's right. I mean, students and staff are very keen to get back to face-to-face learning. Obviously, it's got to be done uh, safely. Um, and I hope it happens because, as you say, students have not had everything that was promised to them in the last uh, year or so. The only thing I'd say is if they had not enrolled at university and not been a student, life would not have been normal either. The alternatives are much on, better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Getting on with their lives, getting a better education will help them in the job market later. You know, it's a very rational, sane thing to do. And most of them are still enjoying university despite the restrictions. And they're voting with their feet and going in bigger numbers than ever before. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 